Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast. My name is Jennifer Apple, she, her, and this week I got to talk to the Tony Award-nominated producer, educator, and entrepreneur, Rachel Sussman. I have been a huge fan of Rachel's for a while, and although I have not met her in person, I was so grateful that she took some time out of her wildly busy schedule to sit and talk to us about producing generally, about her experience from inception to creation of the musical Suffs that has just closed at the public, and about co-founding the Business of Broadway, which is an educational initiative to democratize knowledge about the commercial theater industry. Rachel's energy alone is enough of a reason to listen to this episode, but the resources, tools, history, frankly, that is shared throughout this episode is incomparable, and I am so excited for you to tune in. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode. I am really excited for today because I have somebody on here that I've been a really big fan of from afar, and this is our first encounter (laughs) ever. And I'm really, really grateful and excited to have Rachel Sussman here on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm so honored to be here. I'm so glad we can make this happen. I know. It was like a little... Y'all, as everybody knows, I feel like, what is time? But like... A flat circle. Literally a flat circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, I feel like this is the moment, but it has been leading up to the moment. So the anticipation of the moment has just been really wild. So thanks for finding time in your wild schedule. Oh my gosh, no worries. So um, before we jump on in, and I like get to congratulate you for all the things that you're doing. Um, tell the listener who you are today. Yeah. Hi, listener. Um, my name is Rachel Sussman. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I am uh, talking to you from uh, Muncie Lenape land in Harlem, New York, um, in my brand new apartment that I just moved into recently. Oh my God, congrats. This is the only background I can share in the entire apartment. The rest of it is chaotic. So, so you are seeing a beautiful background. Yeah. Because I had to have one background for Zoom. So I, I made that happen. Um, and I am very excited, as I was saying to Jennifer, uh, to have a bit of time this summer to hopefully balance some of the work with some life stuff and, um, and take, take a beat to re-energize myself and prepare for all the work that's to come in the next season. Yes. Um, I guess if you had to put hats on yourself, or I don't like labels as like a phrase, but like what hats do you wear? I love the, that phrase, what hats do you wear? I also, I call it creative identities too. Great. Um, I creatively identify as an educator. I, I run the Business of Broadway, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. It's an educational initiative. I'm an adjunct professor at Columbia and NYU and Berkeley School of Music. Okay. Uh, and I'm a producer. I am producing every form of, of the word um, creatively, strategically, um, and I, and the, the, those are my two biggest identities, yeah. I would say. Producing is fairly all-encompassing of, yeah. of my trajectory in this business. How did you come to those hats? Like, I mean, obviously, like, we're in the theater land, so I would imagine, mm-hmm. and I'm totally assuming, and that's not fair, that, like, as a kid, you were in some sort of theater something, and then it was, like, move? Or was it, like, no, we're, like, in business land and, like, actually, this is cool? <laughs> Such a good question. I mean, 
So like so many people who find their way into the theater, I began as a performer. Yeah. I was a competitive dancer for a long yes. time. And what kind of dance? All of it. Tap, okay. jazz, ballet, probably some bad version of whatever we thought hip hop was. Um, <laughs> a lyrical point. Like I, oh I, I really, you know, at one time was doing 17 classes a week and um, was like very involved in my dance company. Um, but I also loved theater. And what I learned is there's dance and theater, but there isn't so much theater and dance. So I right. figured I could, by moving more intentionally into the theater space, I was able to continue my my dance education and find the joy in it. So I I started performing when I was seven. I was in a group called the Knapsack Players, which was like <laughs> a recreational theater company in our, you know, town in Metro Detroit. And then I graduated to the Rising Stars, which was sixth wow. to ninth grade, Okay, which was so formative. And I have uh, many of my closest friends today are friends I made in that program when we were kids. And, and I've got very, I had a very um, wonderful, comprehensive high school training. I had, I went to public school, um, I took theater for four years. Oh, I wow. did uh, the musical. I did the play. I was the president of the International Thespian Society, our troupe. For those who are listening, we were troupe 2296. <laughs> and, and then like, you know, culminated in um, because I had this in- incredibly well-rounded education, I knew from the time I was 14 that there was more to just being on stage or being running crew off stage. So I got to explore these other facets of the business in this really, you know, safe and exciting way. Um, In my senior year, I did a dramaturgical analysis. I was very into dramaturgy on a Michael Fran play, um, Copenhagen, which is like a very dense piece Mm -hmm. of literature, won the Tony in 2000. Um, And I... I knew that I loved that. I also loved performing, but you know, it sort of had opened the door for me in high school to realizing there's so much more out there. Right. And I ended up going to NYU to study drama. Um, I was in Strasbourg and then I transferred into the ETW studio, Experimental okay. Theater Wing. And while I was there, I sort of convinced my parents as this sort of ambitious, precocious kid that I really wanted to be in New York. And here were the things that made NYU the right school for me yeah. versus any of the others. Um, coming from Michigan, of course, the University of Michigan is such a prestigious, wonderful Correct. theater program. But I knew I wanted to be in New York. So um, I really pitched my parents on I was going to be networking and interning. And I don't quite know if I even knew what that was. Yeah. They were buzzwords, though. And of so course. I was like, I'm going to take the buzzwords, I'm going to justify them. Um, but I did that. I, I, my freshman year, every semester of school, I used elective credit for an internship. Oh my God. Um, and, uh, I had this amazing internship my sophomore year. I was, had the opportunity to work with Chris Bernie, who was then the associate artistic director of second stage in mm-hmm. New York, now artistic director of New York stage and film. And I got to be the fly on the wall I'll fly on the wall for this process um, of a new play development. And it was like an epiphany for me to be like, mm. oh, I want to make the thing. I want to be in the room with 
these people, a director, a, a, these generative artists talking about, you know, what are we trying to do here? What are we trying to make? Why is now the moment? Who's it yeah. for? You know, all those big questions when you throw all the pain at the wall. And, um, and I, I had been feeling very much like acting from my perspective. I knew there were other things I liked and I had known that in high school. And I watched many of my friends who've gone on to have extraordinary careers where this was it. They were mm -hmm. like, this is what I want. And I knew that there were other things out there that could make me happy. And, um, and I was so, I'm, I'm a Capricorn. So I also like really like me to be in charge. Oh I'm a Capricorn Aquarius cuss. Oh, wow. You are right at the, you're January, baby. I am January 20th. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm December. I am okay. a Capricorn everything except my rising is a Taurus, which should tell you okay. everything you need to know about me. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I just, you know, I, I liked being in a position of leadership. I liked sort of, but in a collaborative leadership capacity. Mm -hmm. And that I felt like as I started that, that experience I had at second stage really opened the door to for me and thinking, oh, maybe this is the path. And, and I found that I was really gravitating toward creating opportunities for producing. And I found it so creative. And, um, and also like, I, I'm a person who likes numbers and likes to make budgets too. And so I got to sort of think strategically and numerically and, um, and the, the business end of it was really interesting to me too. And so, you know, throughout school, because I was in the experimental theater wing, they kind of let me do my own thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so my, my senior year, what you, what you typically do at NYU in the experimental theater wing is you um, create your own project and then they give you space and you present it as a part of, you know, your last semester as a senior. And I wasn't really interested in doing that. I actually wanted to produce an, a fellow student's work for them. And that could be my project. And so I ended up um, producing that at school. And then, you know, through my other internships, finding these collectives of other young artists who were interested in producing. Um, and at the time, you know, there, there weren't, we can talk about now, there are some opportunities that really do exist if you're interested in producing in the theater. But at the time, you know, it was just learn on the job, <laughs> like right. put on, put on a show and, um, and figure out like, what are the elements that you need to make that happen? And so that to me, I, I would say very much so my experience in the gross performing arts company at high school primed me for, for, for my career in producing. Wow. I love hearing how people I mean, get where you are is like such an, I mean, we're continuously, hopefully growing and continuing to quote unquote, get where we are. But I love seeing how people's trajectories get them to where they are in this moment. And then obviously, mm -hmm. hopefully beyond, just because it really is, nothing is linear in, especially in this field. And no. so often as humans, we want to rationalize and make sense of stuff so that we can get things straight and do them well. And it's just, there's such a wonderful release for me, at least when I remind myself how truly every single person's experience is unique. And that is exactly what makes what we do so fascinating and beautiful because there really is no one way and therefore there is no right way. And therefore right. everybody can do what they need to get to where they need to go. Like, it's just really inspiring. 
How cool that you've also had these opportunities to prime you for the thing that you love, which is amazing. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, having a BFA and, and understanding, you know, human interaction and the psychology of people, like all the things you learn when you're in acting school makes me a better producer, yeah. makes any of us who maybe don't end up being actors better at whatever we do, because yeah. it just allows you to have more, a, a deeper, more honest connection with other yeah. people. And empathy and also just exactly. understanding all sides of it as opposed to just the one side. Oh yeah, completely. Well, I want to hear when you decide to work on a project and produce a project, how do you go about finding it and what draws you to it? What makes you want to work on that type of thing? What's speaking to your heart now with the work that you're doing? Mm, that's such a good question. I mean, it really does. There's so many factors. I mean, I like to break it down to three P's, which are people, projects, profits. And typically I would take them in that order. And I, I would say that you, need, you might not have all three, but you should at least have two of the three mm -hmm. um, as a producer. Well, depends. Circumstances obviously um, will maybe change what those priorities are in any sort of given moment. Um, but for me, you know, I'm really interested in work that has something to say that feels connected to the moment that we're in um, uh, without being heavy handed. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested in, in work that has elements of uh, call to action and mm -hmm. feel sort of, um, you know, politically or socially relevant. Um, and in particular stories that haven't yet been told. And I focus a lot on stories um, by and about women and queer individuals and um, people of color um, because I feel like we've seen so many of the living room dramas as they were yeah. kitchen sink dramas. Um, and, and I think that, you know, audiences are excited and ready for new experiences. And I think that has been proven over the past few years, pandemic aside, um, by the kind of work that has been um, elevated into the commercial space. And, you know, I think I, I work as a commercial producer. I have a background also working in nonprofit. I don't think it's, I think it's reductive to say one is about art and one is about business. They're both yeah. intertwined in both sectors, but in the commercial business, you know, it really is a market. It's, you know, what is going to, you know, not only be artistically successful, but what has financial success. And I was very grateful to be a co-producer on what the constitution means to me, which had a very, very special benefit reading for the National Network of Abortion Funds. Heidi Schreck came back after years off the show, yeah. a tour that she was not in um, to perform last night. And I think, you know, constitution, which is a very sort of intimate piece um, based on Heidi's own experience um, debating on the constitution and then also yeah. what she thinks of it today. Um, that piece of theater has many people, of course, thought it was artistically brilliant, but there were questions around, well, you know, can this be successful on Broadway? And by that it's, can it make money? Right. right. And like what we say, like, can it recoup? Can it, um, uh, make the investors who are going to put the money in whole again and then make a profit on top mm -hmm. of that? And 
as of now, Constitution has, you know, returned far over 100% of its ROI. And I mean, there was a tour that completed. Um, So we, I think things like Constitution, going to Broadway, you know, open the door for, for all these other experiences, because now we can say, People do want to see those works. Right. Um, and it felt like a very um, uh, deeply American play, which it is, but people are interested in that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that Broadway for many is, it, for many reasons, is the um, goal because there is not only an opportunity to, you know, make money and, and you know, then participate in various revenue streams from there. But also for people like me, shift the paradigm in terms of the kind of subject matter we're saying has commerciality and has the potential um, and should be seen by so many, right? Because yeah. it's also like the, the biggest stage in so many ways. And so that that makes me feel really excited about, about, um, about the world. And that's just an example of a project I'm so deeply proud of. Yeah, that show is everything um i have so many thoughts and feelings about it we can probably like talk about that <laughs> it's like the whole episode of um, but i feel like kind of in the same vein i do want to talk about suffs because mm-hmm. i feel like it does have a similar women forward conversations that we are not usually having forward it kind of feels akin to constitution a little bit and i'd love totally. to hear how that came to be first of all congratulations on an incredible run but um, how that came to be and um, how it was working on it for you as a particular project. Yeah, I mean, um, so stuff. So unlike Constitution, which already was fully formed and I helped raise money on as a co-producer, right. you know, I wasn't actively creatively involved. We had three brilliant lead producers who really shepherded it from New York Theatre Workshop to Broadway. Sufs was um, an idea I conceived of when I was 12. So so I have, you know, a very deep, I was talking to an artist friend, it's like, you know, when, when you work on something so deep and so long, it feels like an extension of you in some ways. Yeah. And um, so um, when I was in seventh grade, I had the opportunity to do a project in my history class on turn of the 20th century America. And so I chose women's suffrage. Um, Believe it or not, this was like pre Google really existing in the way it did now it does now. So I went to my middle school library, just like typed in askjeeves.com. And was like women's suffrage. (laughs) Unbelievable. We love a library, Uh though. We really do love a library. But there wasn't really much available in the library. And um, I'm not sure what your sort of um, education was. But for, for most, and I was in a public school system, you know, I, I would say broadly, the education of women's suffrage in the American system is Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they sort of put abolition and suffrage together in a, yes. in a quick way. And then you sort of get to the, the 14th and 15th amendments. And then, you know, you're really in World War One. That's a huge focus. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just a little cursory note about women got the right to vote in 1920, also prohibition, like all the other things. It's just yeah. sort of couched in there. And I found it so interesting. And I mean, I, I could talk about women's suffrage and history forever because the ways in which abolition and suffrage also created tension. Um, but 
the thing that I, I really came to learn is, you know, men hold the pen of history, as we know, and all of those books are written by men and from a male gaze in terms of, you know, they don't know what these women went through. And so there wasn't really much available in my middle school library, but being the kind of kid I was that made me even more passionate and more determined to find that information. I went to the county library and suddenly like opened up this world of like biographies about Alice Paul and Ida B. Wells and Carrie Chapman Cat. And I was like, this is insane. Why yeah. are these women being kept from me? Like, why don't I know about the women, the legacy of these women that I'm now a part of? Right. And, um, you know, women as a whole are pretty uh, removed and erased from U.S. history. So I became like a big suffrage nerd and, and read a bunch about it throughout middle school and high school. And then, you know, went off to college to be a performer. And when I made the shift into producing, this sort of found its way back to the forefront of my mind. And I thought, you know, why isn't this a piece of theater? It's so dramatically, like inherently yeah. dramatic. Um, and for those who don't know, I mean, um, Soft Switch focuses on the 10 years leading up to the passage of the 19th Amendment, um, really tells the story of um, Alice Paul, who was a sort of younger radical suffragist and Carrie Chapman Catt, who was more moderate leader of the movement at the time. And um, it, it's really about, you know, the two people fighting for the exact same goal, which is to get women the right to vote with completely different means of getting there and sort of how that tension actually creates progress and that you need both a moderate and a radical to actually get for change to happen. Um, and so Alice Paul um, and the National Women's Party, which is the political party she founded, um, they were really pioneers of civil disobedience and tactics of um, nonviolent direct action in the United States, which she learned from the Brits, from yeah. the WSPU. Um, Gandhi also learned a lot from them. And so, you know, I, I, it's very interesting to think that that is in many ways the foundation of how, you know, we protest, which of course the civil rights movement really solidified. And now we in New York, I mean, we, we protest here all the time. And the fact that it has origins back dating to the suffrage movement in the United States is very powerful. Um, and they were the first to ever pick at the White House, um, the, the more radical end, yeah. and they were silent and they were nonviolent. And so they didn't really know what to do with these women. Ultimately, they were arrested for obstructing traffic. They like didn't know how to get rid of them. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they went to prison and they went on hunger strike. And it was really like, a, a deeply dramatic moment in our nation's history that I feel like so few of us understand or or were taught. And while I think in many ways, you know, the goal of SUFS is, of course, to share this history so that people know it and learn it for the mm -hmm. first time, it's it's not purely educational. It's also about connecting with these women and recognizing the ways in which, you know, this movement has so is resonating today and yeah. sort of this was the first wave of feminism 70s was the second we're in the third now and um and the ways in which you know intersectionality now plays into so much of our um action towards real 
equity, right? Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. and, and this is a piece of our show, which is examining the blind spots of the white suffragists who at the time, many thought, you know, this is single issue focused. We cannot also focus on race. We have to focus on gender. Mm-hmm. And of course, today, you know, we have the hindsight to recognize you can't actually fight for two things at the same time or, or multiple things yeah, yeah. and exist as with multiple identities. And yep. so it's really, you know, I think all of that is so um, profound. And as we gear up for our next chapter of softs, we're really digging in to continue to find what, you know, makes that engine hum even more. Uh, okay. I learned a lot. <laughs> Which, now I'm like, I need to, why don't I know these things? And now I'm going to go to a library and get my own info. Um, can I ask what the next chapter is for SUFFS? Is that, am I allowed to ask that? I guess I can, I'm allowed to ask. You don't You're have to allowed answer. to ask anything and I can answer it however I want. Um, um, no, to the best of my ability, I, I will say, you know, our, our work is not done. I feel like um, the show is extraordinarily ambitious and and epic, and it feels, I think, to so many people important. And we want to yeah. to do the work to to present this not only this history but this story, right? Because ultimately, we're here to serve the the dramatic story um, as um, effectively as we can. So. Our next step is to continue to do that. I love the diplomacy. And, and I promise you will hear more about it soon. I have no doubt. I have no doubt we will, <laughs> especially considering it was one of the hottest tickets and no one can see it. Um, unless well, like- we had a ton of COVID. And sadly. COVID. Oh, I know. And yeah, COVID. we lost 25 performances due to COVID, um, which I mean stuff is only one case i could list a number of other shows right. in particular off broadway like soft and which way to the stage um which were so impacted by covid and yeah. and it's hard you know we just don't have the coverage off broadway and you know we're working with much smaller budgets than broadway shows um and i just want to commend our company but all the companies and artists who are trying to make live theater right now because it is so hard and it can feel so disheartening and we didn't get to open our show we canceled our opening night of stuffs Mm -mm. and quite frankly weren't entirely sure we were going to close it we ended up having two shot covid shutdowns um and we came back the thursday before a sunday closing and i had sort of um you know psyched myself up to say like you know we might not get to close the show i like sort of had to prepare myself mentally and emotionally and then i was sitting in the theater at intermission and it finally hit me that like we were really doing our last performance and we had an audience there who you know had been trying to see the show mostly since our opening night like all the friends and family who hadn't been in yet and it felt overwhelming and also like i'm just so grateful in some ways i feel like we beat covid by getting to do our final weekend and finally getting to celebrate yeah it's such it's such a complicated endeavor normally, <laughs> and then throwing this oh my God. in as a logistical nightmare, and also just 
Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. And so no. congratulations for even getting the run and congratulations Thank for having you. an incredible run despite the fact that you lost many a performance due to the circumstances. But yeah, no, we know we I I anticipate we will be hearing more about this. Mm -hmm. Um kind of doubling back, how did you find when you had this idea, how did you find your team for it to kind of start going from there? And I guess totally. maybe this is the secondary question and you can decide how you want to navigate it. What is producing then, right? Because it's like, if you had this idea, I feel like there's many different types of producers. And so it's not fair to be like, there's only one way to produce. But this one is like producing from inception versus say a co-producing moment with constitution. So I guess for this one, navigating how you found the team and then got to produce yeah. it from inception up, but also just generally producing. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, I can share, you know, first of all, there, I mentioned there are two sectors, there's nonprofit right. and commercial and there's producing within both. Um, and often now producing nonprofit and commercial in a hybrid form, um, which, which is what we did mm -hmm. for steps in our original um, our world premiere production, the public theater is a nonprofit, and we partnered with them, me and my producing partner, Jill Furman, as commercial producers to enhance their production. So we, we did that together. Um, I mean, I, I primarily think of, you know, the, the producer that most of us think of, and I think our recognition of producing in the commercial theater is the person who gets to stands at the microphone when, you know, you win the Tony Award for best play or best musical or whatever. The person who talks into the microphone is the lead producer. And then there's normally like gaggle of other yes. people around them who are all the co-producers who helps them raise money to make it happen. Um, but the lead producer, their producers, because there can be multiple, are really the folks who are decision makers and who, um, do, you know, pave, pave a path for a show's commercial life. And so with something like Seth's, um, that was a producer-generated idea. That I think is more rare um, than artist-generated ideas. More often than not, you hear of an artist who goes to a producer and says, I have an idea for a project, or here's a draft, and then you know, it, it really stems from them. Um, but Seth's was unique. Um, I will say Hairspray is another example of a producer-generated project. Margot Lyon had that idea to adapt the John Waters mm. film. Um, she, late great Margot Lyon, for those of you who don't know her, she's a very extraordinary producer in our business. Um, but I, you know, having had this idea for so long, Shana Taub, who is mm -hmm. our, our creator of Softs, we went to school together. Um, we weren't in the same year. She graduated before me, um, but we started to be in similar social circles after school. Mm -hmm. And she was uh, also a musical artist. She wrote a lot of her own music, in addition to sort of working in the theater space as a composer lyricist. And I started to go see a lot of her shows at Rockwood and at Joe's Pub. Um, and I really like got a sense of the kind of work she was interested in, also her musical style and sound which is um you know I think at one point she said to me it's like Stevie Wonder and Regina Son uh Regina Spector and Stephen Sondheim like all rolled into one and I was like yes. so pretty accurate um 
and I I knew that she was interested in in you know women's stories, and um, she'd been trying to work on this one story, which was sort of a gender flipped story, and I reached out to her um, and said, "Hey, I I have an idea for a project. I think you." should write it. I think you're the right person to write it. Um, can we meet and can I share the idea with you? And she said, Hey, I'm happy to hear it. I am doing a show at ART in Cambridge right now. Um, I won't be back for like two months, but if you want to come up and see the show and then go out to dinner, like happy to do that. So I ended up going up to ART. I saw her in the show. We went out to dinner and I pitched her on the idea I said do you know who Alice Paul is and she said no I've never heard of her and I said okay but do you know who Susan B. Anthony is and she said oh of course I know who Susan B. Anthony is whenever you ask someone that question they're almost offended because she is like a historical figure and I said well you know Susan B. Anthony was long dead when women got the right to vote um it actually took three generations of women so the women who started the movement you know Seneca Falls Um, didn't live to see the end and the women who sort of got the amendment passed weren't there at the beginning. And I felt like that was a really exciting tension. And, um, and I told her, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested in, in telling the story that nobody knows, which is how the amendment got passed. And as we well know today, and Shana and I uncovered um, in the last eight years, you know, (laughs) it's been a a real journey. Um, The, the amendment, the 19th amendment was really just a step toward gaining full equality for women. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, we try and explore that in the piece, which is, you know, these were flawed human beings at the end of the day. And sometimes they made, um, you know, politically expedient choices over justice-based ones. And ultimately, um, you know, this fight continues. And quite frankly, the fight will always continue. And I think yeah. that's part of like the generational, you know, Alice Paul never met Susan B. Anthony. She passed the torch. Um, and, you know, young um, activists today, I think of Greta Thunberg and folks like that who are also, you know, of this legacy. Right. Um, and maybe not necessarily in the fight towards women's rights, but all rights or, or climate justice. And, um, and so I really thinking about it as this cycle of, you know, mothers and daughters and, and how intergenerational so many of these struggles are. And the fact that our rights are about to be decimated by the Supreme Court. <laughs> and so, I mean, and, and I will share. So we did a, a, we went to a rally. Our company did a rally and, and sang one of the songs, which is how long must women wait for liberty, which was a real slogan in 1917. And here we are over a hundred years later asking that same question. So it just feels to me so potent in terms of the subject matter. Um, and so Shana, back to Shana, I get her out to dinner. I asked her these questions. I pitched her on this idea and I handed her this book um, which is the only firsthand account that really exists from um, the the more radical end of the movement. Um, the National Women's Party was written by their secretary, Doris Stevens, who's a character in our piece. 
And I said, you know what, read this when you get time, let me know what you think. Mm -hmm. And then I went home to New York City and I woke up the next morning with an email from Shana. She had stayed up reading the book and she just said, "This we have to do this, yes. Wow. And wow. that was 2014, so that was eight years ago. And then, you know, I being a, a young producer who understood the boundaries of my skill set, Mm -hmm. uh you know uh, it would be beneficial to us to bring in someone who's more experienced and also um has the financial capacity that I don't yet have and um I brought in a producing partner Jill Furman who's extraordinary producer um in the heights in Hamilton yeah. and that was 2016 and then um you know a year or so later our director Lee Silverman came on board because Shayna you know, for a while, we weren't sure, Shana's going to write the whole thing herself, are we going to have a book writer? And then it became very clear that Shana was feeling very committed to writing mm -hmm. it as a solo artist. And that can be very lonely. Yeah. So we brought in a director dramaturg to really be a sparring partner with her and decided to do that earlier. Um, and then the, the public did a reading in 2018. And we sort of turned to each other and they said, let's continue to develop this together. Let's, let's make it happen at the public. So the rest is really history. Wow. Wow. Oh, and I should say, we also brought our choreographer, Raja Fabertelli into the fold, um, which and Raja's an amazing artist, choreographer of A Strange Loop. Mm -hmm. um, that happened, you know, sort of after the pandemic when we had to sort of recalibrate um, and figure out, you know, who else is joining our team. And quite frankly, in in the wake of George Floyd's murder, you know, the ways in which we wanted to really deeply examine race within our storytelling and our dramaturg, Anna Thompson also became so invaluable to our process. Yeah. It's so important to surround yourself with like-minded artists who also believe in the same thing. And it seems like throughout every single aspect of this, you were so intentional about the way in which the story could be told and continuing to be intentional about the world that we're living in and how perhaps one must shift from initial inception to the ways in which it needs to be, you know, analyzed through whatever we're living through. I think it's really, it takes a certain type of person to be a bit uh, humble and have a bit of humility to recognize that you don't know everything and other people do know more and that actually strengthens the idea anyway. Um, so congratulations on on this whole thing. I cannot wait to see it oh, in yes. its next iteration, <laughs> wherever and however that might be. So um, I want to shift a little bit now to uh, the business of Broadway um, mm -hmm. and talking about that as it's, is it a company organization foundation? How did, what is the actual label for it before I, we, I mean, I guess we call it a few different things. It's a company really. Cool. Um, uh, there are, uh, it was founded by Eric Rothstein, Heather Shields, Dana Lerner and myself. And, and we've also brought Sammy Lopez into mm -hmm. the fold now to join us. And it began really, you know, uh, Eric Rothstein, who's an incredible producer and um, an artist manager, we were out to dinner in like mid 2019. And she said to me, you know, I'm so interested in like getting in, in helping people understand what we do. 
because the very question you asked, like, what is a producer doing? What does that look like? And, and it's something I'd also been thinking about. And then separately, you know, Heather had been having these conversations with Erica and we just said, you know what? We just have to do it. And that's also so much of what producing is. It's like, well, the thing doesn't exist. I guess you have to make it happen. Um, and so it's an educational initiative that really focuses on democratizing knowledge around how the commercial business operates. Mm-hmm. Trying to help really, I think, artists understand what producers do and also students who maybe want to be producers or folks who maybe work in another realm of the business, maybe they're investors who are interested in becoming producers. And so we really try to um, remove the iron curtain because so much of this the business end of things has been actively withheld Correct. from the creative end. They've like bifurcated those things. And I think, you know, it has led to, um, you know, a, a, a lack of trust, a lack of understanding and, and has created in some ways a hierarchy wherein there are yeah. people who know things and people who don't. And from our view um, at Business of Broadway, we call ourselves Bob or Bobsies. Um, from our view, it, it actually would be more beneficial if we could, you know, share that information because it will lead to more effective collaboration Correct. ultimately and, and building a real trust and communication wherein, you know, I know what my playwright's doing, right? Mm-hmm. But they have no idea what I'm doing. And, and to a degree, I think, you know, I, I trust them to do the work. I don't need to sit there with them while they're writing in the same way they don't need to sit there with me in meetings. But there's a, a real respect and trust built that says, I know you're going to do your job and I'm going to do my job. And I understand, you know, like the, the goals you're working towards in the same way you understand the goals I'm working towards that ultimately serve our project at large. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's literally how I initially found you <laughs> was through Heather because of Business of Broadway, because Y'all's mission is so similar, obviously in a different sector to what we do here at EAC, but really mm-hmm. about bridging that that breadth of knowledge that we're not taught these things. And in yeah. a, in it just boggles my mind, and I can go on my little high horse about it. But like this whole <laughs> entire industry is is built on the premise of collaboration, and so the fact that we have these it's gatekeeping, frankly, but we have the gatekeeping, and we have you know, these these iron curtains that are separating us from better collaborating is defeating the entire purpose of why most of us enter into this to begin with. Like it really, it makes literally no sense to me and it deeply infuriates me (laughs) to my core. I I know, and I can tell. And (laughs) I think, but in a great way, like, and I think, you know, so much of this business and so many businesses are built on this like scarcity mentality, which is like, if I have this information, I can succeed. And if I keep it from you, I'll I'll succeed more than you. Exactly. Instead of uh, your success is my success. Your success is mm -hmm. my success. And like in your success, we all succeed. And, um, and so I think that's sort of much more of, in some ways, like I would consider it like a growth mindset and this belief in abundance, which is, you know, real, real sharing of 
um, knowledge and resources and opportunities, which I do with all of my producing colleagues. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a real shift generationally. I think that, you know, this upcoming generation of producers, you know, we, I understand it's a competitive, we're working in a commercial industry. There is a certain level of competition. There are only 41 Broadway theaters. Sometimes you might want something that a colleague of yours has, but just because they get it doesn't mean you fail. Right. Um, and I think, you know, that has become so ingrained in us and, you know, to really shift and to say, okay, well, you know, you can actually be a better artist by understanding sort of the building blocks of, you know, the management end of things. And, and quite frankly, I think if we all want to begin to really question and challenge some of the systems, it's hard to do that if you don't understand how they operate. Um, and I, I find so often that I'm, I will talk to artists who, you know, they're angry about certain things because they just don't understand them or information has been withheld from them. And once, you know, we have a deeper conversation and I explain, well, you know, how the unions operate, for example, or why certain rules and regulations are in place. They're like, oh, well, how do we fix that? And then we can have a deeper conversation exactly. about like, okay, well, it's great to think abstractly about, obviously this is broken, but how can we find a solution? Exactly. Exactly. Well, what are some of the things that you all teach or how does it work if, say, I am an artist who wants to expand my breadth of knowledge about those other things and I don't I don't quite know how or where to begin? Like, what do I do when I contact you all the business of Broadway? Yeah, I mean, so we're on the business of Broadway.com um, and we teach all the time. We teach in the pandemic, I think, you know, we, we really taught virtually and have been teaching virtually, but... Um, we started to add and incorporate in-person classes again, which we had done when we were founded in mm -hmm. fall of 2019, which is just before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but we've really, you know, figured out how to exist in a digital format. Um, so we teach a producing one-on-one -on -one course. Um, we try and keep our classes very accessible in terms of pricing, in particular for the one-on-one -on -one class, which we consider more foundational. And then we've, we have these sort of... Um, 200 level courses, which are more in-depth topics, uh, including creative development, about how a show gets made, talk about, you know, what does a nonprofit commercial enhancement relationship look like? Um, we also talk about unions and guilds, the history, how they function today, assessing and transacting investment. You know, if you were interested in, in either becoming an investor or co-producer, how to talk about, you know, that big stack of paperwork you're given, read an right. operating agreement. Um, and we also have a, a marketing and social media strategy course. So we've really built out this curriculum and, and are actually working on a few other things now. But uh, we, we teach uh, 101 every single month. And then we teach all of our 200 level courses every other month. And if anyone is interested, they can go and look at our schedule on our website, thebusinessofbroadway.com. Thank you for sharing all of that. Mm -hmm. For anybody who's listening who is interested in producing, obviously, like, go to Business of Broadway and take their classes. But in addition to that, what would be your advice to future producers or aspiring producers about where to even begin? Such a good question. I mean, you know, I 
I certainly think that producing as, as much as you can learn in a classroom, um, producing is really a skills that you develop by doing because so much of it is interpersonal and um, understanding, you know, not only what, what the role and responsibilities are, but how to then interact with all of these various other collaborators in a process. Remember, it's not just for a producer, it's not just the writer or the director or the creative team. It's also production management, it's general management, mm-hmm. advertising and marketing. So there's so many different facets that you are, you know, you have your hand in so many different pots. Um, I would recommend um, a couple books. Um, the, the first is this great book um, called The Secret Life of the American Musical. It's written by Jack Bertel. Um, and, and then there's this more of a memoir um, by the great Ted Chapin, former head of Rogers and Hammerstein organization called Everything Was Possible, The Birth of Musical Follies. It's one of my favorite books. I've read it more times than I know. Um, but Ted was like a gopher, like the guy who goes to get coffee for um, Sondheim and Hal Prince um, on <laughs> while they were building Follies like out of town. And they, you know, it's like these young, co- these young star collaborators who just finished company. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, Follies was not like a massive commercial hit. In fact, I think many would call it a commercial flop but it was like this really interesting concept musical and um and it's just like such a fascinating journey of development and you know ted talks in the book about when stephen sondheim stayed up and like wrote i'm still here and was like i wrote this last night you know now we think of i'm still here as like such a part of the canon so it's really um, an incredible book that I can't recommend enough because I think it's also so dramatically compelling. Um, and then uh, there is another book that I hold very near and dear to my heart. The Commercial um, Theater Institute, CTI, is um, not active right now, but they did put out a book uh, a while ago in the early 2000s called The Commercial Theater Institute's Guide to Producing Plays and Musicals. And it's basically just a bunch of interviews with producers and you learn about, you know, they tell you all these sort of anecdotes about their experiences and, you know, how to raise money and, you know, their philosophy on producing. And I, there were particular stories in that book that I did not agree with. And then others that like still resonate with me today. So I think it's also understanding the landscape and for those who maybe do want to consider a career in the commercial theater, you know, I, this is one of our fun facts that we always share in our business of Broadway 101 class, you know, when you go to the theater and you pick up your playbill and you open it to the title page, you know, that first line of names, those are the lead producers. And if you start to get to know those, you'll see there are often many co-producers, but the folks who are lead producers, um, they, uh, they have a lot of other shows and you could sort of figure out like what's their career been and get to sort of understand where did they start. Many, many start as um, in other aspects. Like I was a performer and then I did a lot of interning and I also interned in general management in addition to second stage. And like mm-hmm. that, having that foundation has made me a better producer understanding sort of the general management end, which we like to consider more of like the CFO, if right. the producers, the CEO. Um, and so I, I really recommend that you, that you do some research on all of that. And then 
you have to reach out to those people and, and start to build relationships with them. I'm a huge um, proponent of, you know, you have to, you have to ask. And I always feel very um, gratified when I get emails from young or aspiring producers who are like, your career, or what you've done has made an impact on me. And, um, and then we can sort of start to build a connection. I was going to ask you what has, if you had to pick one, what was the most memorable reach out that you have gotten from a random person and how has that morphed from that initial reach out? What did they do and how did it go? I mean, it's so interesting. It sort of like leads me into a little bit of my philosophy, which, um, I, I joke a lot with friends, you know, I'm sure you get them too, Jennifer, like pick your brain emails, which is like yeah. a two sentence email where somebody's like, hi, it sort of feels like they feel like they're supposed to email you and they're supposed to know you and they just want to pick your brain. Um, and, you know, I am always those emails I find really challenging because I know nothing about you. Yeah. you. You haven't asked me anything specific. But when I get an artist who, you know, can point to a particular project or, you know, tell me about their own challenges and ask some questions about how I, um, how I was able to move through a challenge similar, you know, like I find those to be such compelling conversations. And often, you know, I'll say, we should really like meet up or zoom about this. Like this is requires more than an email conversation. And then that will really begin to build a meaningful relationship um because i'm really interested in like you know i think it's it's important it's a part of this business to network and just you know say hello and and pick pick your brain i i absolutely understand that but i'm also like interested in the folks who are like really deep and invested in their career yeah and our people right because then you're learning you're learning about a person on the other side of it a little bit more and then there's it's not just like let me be transactional about career advice. It's like, no, I'm a human being. You're a human being. How can we both connect and, and grow together and learn from one another and becomes more of a symbiotic situation rather than just a, yep. I hear that. Exactly. Um, I, I'm so grateful for how open you have been and also how much I've learned in this conversation, which honestly, again, is like a huge reason why I reached out a because like, I feel like the ethos of what you do is is in alignment with a lot of what I do. But also, I'm really I really admire the way in which you do navigate through your career. And it seems so intentional. And you're surrounding yourself with people who are dope artists. And I'm just grateful that you've given me and this community some time of your precious time Mm -hmm. um, to distill a little bit of what it means to be a producer in this day and age, to have your ideas and to um, put them into the world. And so thank you for this conversation of which I could continue for so much longer. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm so glad to connect with you and get to learn more about, you know, the empowered artists collective and, and know that we are in such like deep alignment and, yeah, there'll be more to come from both of us. I'm sure we'll be crossing paths. A oh, lot. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so for anybody who's listening, how in the method that is most respectful of your own boundaries, can people reach out to you, whether they do have a specific <laughs> desire to express themselves, or they're yeah. more curious about, you know, obviously the business of Broadway, as we mentioned, but what are some of those ways to reach out to you respectfully? 
totally. Um, and thank you for asking. Um, so the business of Broadway.com is an easy way to go and sign up for our courses. I have a website too, which is Rachel slash hyphen, I guess, sussman.com. Um, but I'm also on Instagram at Rach Suss and I'm pretty active and always responding to folks on there. Um, but I do have a section on my website if anybody is interested in sort of sending me an email and then I will respond to you from my real email. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, thank you so, so much and more soon. Yeah. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Nothing inspires me more as an artist than listening to other inspired and empowered artists doing what they do best in ways that are changing this industry. And Rachel is a perfect example of that. I'm so grateful for the conversation that we had and the resources and tools that were shared. I hope that you found it equally as inspiring and motivating and perhaps a door was opened for you in a way that you might not have seen before within this industry. If you liked this episode, please like, rate, follow, and most importantly, review us. I cannot express enough how much this means to this podcast and also fellow artists out there who need to hear these conversations. If you did not like this conversation, just let all of that slide. If you've not yet done so, please follow us on Instagram at Empowered Artist Collective, on TikTok at Empower Artist Collective, and on our website at EmpoweredArtistCollective.com. I'm so grateful that you keep tuning back into these conversations, and I cannot wait to have you back again next week. Until then.